If you're a Christian, I wonder if you realize the power, your most impactful tool that you have in engaging people with the gospel. That tool, that instrument, is your story, your, your testimony, the, the telling and retelling of God's gracious activity in your life over time. In a culture where people are often closed off to absolute truth, universal, comprehensively applying truths, we do find some openness to something that is true for you. As a starting point, people sometimes are open to hearing, hey, what's, what's true for you? I'll give you a hearing. I'll listen up to that. And so in a culture and an age when sometimes it's difficult just to outright share the gospel and, and invite people to respond in the moment to that absolute truth, sometimes the power of your shared story, how the gospel has impacted you specifically, you personally, is a gateway to more gospel conversation. And so I wonder if you readily think about and utilize your testimony, if you're a Christian, if you have four or five minutes, do you feel equipped, comfortable to walk somebody through God's gracious activity in your life? Four to five minutes, a little bit more than an elevator speech, but how can you walk somebody through what God has done in your life that it highlights not you, but Christ in you, what he's done for you? It is a good and effective tool that every Christian has in his or her tool belt. We're approaching the final segment of the book of Acts, chapters 22 through 28. And what you'll notice in this final segment is the frequency with which Paul shares his testimony. He gets a hearing before crowds, before governors, before authorities, both Jewish and Roman, and he takes the opportunity to share the story of what Christ has done in his life. It's almost as if he's a broken record again and again through these final six chapters of Acts. Paul is sharing his story. Paul is declaring the gracious activity that God has accomplished in his life. There's a mixed response to his sharing. Some curiosity, some confusion, some criticism and ridicule. Yet he continues to persevere in sharing it because in the sharing of his testimony is the furtherance of the gospel going forward. God's mission is continuing as Paul shares his testimony. And so it is with us. As we share God's work in our lives with others, we're actually advancing one conversation, one story, one life at a time. So an aim of the sermon is to persevere in sharing your testimony. Don't be afraid to share your story. It's a powerful tool in your tool belt. Every story is a miracle. Everyone is a unique work of God and his grace, and there's power in sharing it. So this morning, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Acts that we've entitled Church on Mission, we see Paul persevering in sharing his testimony as a part of that mission. Let's open our Bibles to Acts 
chapter 21, and in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 21 on page 931. Acts 21, page 931 in those Bibles on your chairs. And if you're here and you need a Bible, you know somebody who needs a Bible, please feel free to grab one in the lobby, that third uh, bookshelf from the, the entryway. There are black hardcover Bibles there. You're welcome to take one of those for yourself or to give it some, to somebody who needs it. Acts 21, I'll begin in verse 37, and I'll read through Acts 22, verse 29. So Luke, the author, writes, Acts 21, verse 37, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by, approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. 
And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. The aim of this message is to persevere in proclaiming your testimony. No matter the response, no matter the circumstance, persevere in proclaiming your testimony. We'll make two movements in this sermon. The first is testimony delivered, and the second is testimony rejected. Two movements throughout this longer passage, testimony delivered and then testimony rejected. So be helpful at this point to give a review of where we were two weeks ago, the last time we were in Acts. Acts 21 verses 1 through 36, we find Paul in a predicament. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's got a sum of money that has been collected by the Gentile Christians throughout the Roman Empire that he's been ministering to, planting churches among. They've collected an amount of money to then be delivered to poor Christians in Jerusalem. And as Paul heads to Jerusalem, he makes a couple stops at cities along the way, and he's warned in those cities by those Christians not to go to Jerusalem for what awaits him there is suffering, arrest, and imprisonment. Paul knows this. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to him in Ephesus. He spoke about it to the Ephesian elders. It's no surprise But the Christians say, look, this is what awaits. Don't go. Paul says, I know I'm going. It's part of the mission. So he's ultimately arrested in the temple courts very soon after arriving in the temple that day. The accusation against him, we read in Acts 21, verse 28, is this. The Jews who traveled to Ephesus for the Feast of Pentecost, they recognized Paul. Paul had preached in their city for three years. They knew exactly who he was. And so when he arrives in Jerusalem, they see him and they cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and this place. So in other words, the the accusation is Paul is against the law of Moses. Paul is against the, the traditions, the customs of the Jews. He's defiling this place too, this precious temple by bringing Gentiles into it, which wasn't true. They accused him. They 
assumed he had brought his friend Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. They think he is seeking to dismantle Judaism. And then Paul begins to make a defense. And the first defense speech that we see is right here in Acts chapter 22. And there will be many, many more defense speeches as we go through the rest of the six chapters in the book of Acts. Paul's point in his defense speech, in this testimony, is I am not anti-Jewish. I've been steeped in the law, trained under renowned rabbis, Gamaliel. I know all about this way, this tradition, but in the course of time, the Messiah, the one that you are supposed to be waiting for, has appeared to me and called me and saved me, transformed me and sent me to take the message to the nations. That's what he's saying. He's just being open and honest about who he is. I am a Jew, trained, highly educated in the ways of the Jews. And I encountered the the risen Christ, the Messiah, and he transformed me and sent me. This is credible. That's what he's seeking to do here in his defense speech. So Acts 21, verses 37 through 40, we see the setup for the speech. Luke tells us, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, do you know Greek? So this tribune was a commander of soldiers, a commander of a Roman cohort, probably 600 to 1,000 soldiers. So a man of position, a man of power. And Paul speaks to him. Can I have a word with you, Paul says. And the tribune says, well, do you know Greek? That's what I speak. Paul says, yes, and begins to speak. Paul gets his attention through his fluency in the Greek language. And then the tribune assumes he's somebody else. He says, are are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? The, The tribune references this recent rebellion that has cropped up in Jerusalem. There was no shortage of revolutionaries at this time among the Jews. Zealous Jews who wanted to throw off the oppressive regime the oppressive occupation of Rome in Israel would gain a following and seek to perpetrate violence against Roman officials, Roman soldiers. We see this group of assassins. The word there is dagger men, a collection of dagger men. What these revolutionaries would do is they'd go into crowds where there were many Romans, officials, and soldiers. They'd stab people with, with daggers and run terrorizing people. Are you not this guy, this Egyptian who stirred up? Is that why all this outcry? The the tribune is entirely wrong in his assumption about Paul. Look how quickly Paul dismisses and corrects him. Paul says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. You have it all wrong. I'm a Jew raised up in Tarsus, no obscure city, no podunk town, but rather a prominent city. Tarsus was the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia, an educational hub, a school of philosophy that Paul knew and was trained there, a hub of industry, capital city. And then Paul asks the tribune for a hearing before this mob of accusers. 
He seeks a hearing before this angry crowd. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when the tribune had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, just seeking to quiet them down, for he has something to say. And then there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language. The angry crowd becomes calm as Paul motions with his hands and begins to speak in the Hebrew language, which is Aramaic, the spoken language of the Hebrews, the Jews, Aramaic. Notice how Paul gains the attention of a Roman officer by pivoting to Greek, and now he gains the attention of the Hebrews by pivoting to Aramaic. Highly educated, maneuvering among two people groups, two languages. They hush when they hear him begin to address them in their own heart language. Paul says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So Paul begins to unveil his extensive Jewish resume. He's not anti-Jewish. He's raised up thoroughly Jewish. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, a renowned Jewish rabbi. All his accusers there would have known Gamaliel. So he's seeking to earn credit with these accusers. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And Paul's saying, I was a devout Jew, a zealous Jew, in fact. I furiously persecuted the way. We've talked about what the way means in Acts. What is the way? Friends, the way is the way of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And then followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. I persecuted Christians. I persecuted this group of people, this church, Paul said. Letters were given to me. Search and arrest warrants were given to me to go to Damascus and to haul people out who become Christians, Jews who become Christians, take them back to Jerusalem to try them and punishment. Extradition letters, letters that warranted arrest and imprisonment. So he's building this case, a strong case of his Jewishness. And thus will show them that something dramatic had to happen in order to change him from that zealot Jew that he was now to one who is preaching the very message of the way. So he's building this case, I am steeped in the Jewish way, but something dramatic had to happen in my life to take me from where I once was to where I now am. That is the nature, friends, of a testimony. A testimony is going to take people, tell them where you once were and where you are now and how you got there. And the question for every Christian is, how did you get there? It's the same answer, Christ. Where I was and where I am, the difference is Christ. That's what he's doing. 
I was a zealous persecutor of the church, and I became a preacher of the church. How did that happen? Only Christ. Only Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's building this case that ultimately will exalt the transforming power of Jesus. The transformation is next in his testimony. He says, as I'm on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, midday, a great light that was not the sun came from heaven and suddenly shone around me. This is what is sometimes called as theophany, which means God appearing. They're throughout the Old Testament, theophanies. God, theo, phanos, appearing. Theophany, God appears. You see this in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel is on the bank of the river, and suddenly a great light shone around him. He falls on his face, and one like a son of man, shining in radiant, resplendent glory, appears to him. Daniel drops to his face, just as Paul did on the road to Damascus. God has appeared to Paul, just as God had appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. This is a theophany, seeking to help his Jewish friends see that this is no sort of ordinary appearing. This is God showed up in my life. That's what Paul's trying to say. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice and the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. Notice this point here. Jesus appears to Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Saul actually persecuting? Christians. Yet Jesus says when he appears to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What does that tell us? Jesus Christ is so intimately united with his people that to persecute his people is to persecute him. Let that soak in. Jesus loves his people. He's intimately associated with his people. He's intimately associated with you if you believe in him. You become one with him. And to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. Do you believe that you are one with Jesus? The solidarity, the unity that you have with him. To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. We are one with Christ. Both as individuals and as a collective community, as a church, we are one with Christ. He is radically close with his bride, with us. Let that encourage you today. No matter what you go through, the depth of sorrow, the height of joy, and every emotional gradation in between, Christ is with you. You are one with him. Be encouraged. Jesus Christ shows up and transforms Paul's life. 
He takes a terrorist of the church and makes him a teacher of the church. Only Christ can do that. Radical, radical transformation. This is the power of Jesus Christ. Friends, he does miracles in people's lives. He has done miracles in your life. If you're a Christian, Christ has transformed you. And I know people look at Paul's story and say, that is just far out. I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't a persecutor of the church. I hadn't hit rock bottom in drugs and alcohol and promiscuity. That is some people's story. But let me remind you, to be delivered from sin, no matter the severity, is a miracle. You can't get yourself up and out of it. Only Christ can. A selfish heart that only thought about number one, delivered from that by Jesus to a selfless heart, that's a miracle. And that's all of us, if you're Christ. Every salvation story is a miracle. Don't believe the lie that yours is unremarkable. That's just not true. If you are in Christ today, you've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and you've been ushered into the kingdom of light. You've been delivered from the way of death and now brought into the way of life. Only Christ can do that. It's a transformation akin to Paul, different a little bit in degree, but it's all Christ's work. It's his power. He has power to change our lives. Believe it. For yourself, if you're here and you're not a Christian, believe it. Jesus Christ can change your life. If you would look to him in faith, he came for you, died in your place, was buried and rose again on the third day, and anybody who believes in him is forgiven of all their sins and enters a relationship with him that lasts forever. And believe it for the people in your life as well. Who in your life right now needs Jesus? Who comes to mind when I ask you that question? It's a great question because it will prompt your prayers and will lead to conversation and action. They can be changed. They can be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Believe it. Believe it. Pray for it and share it as you have the opportunity. This is the power of Christ. Every testimony, every salvation story is the recounting of a miracle, a miracle that Jesus alone does. Well, Paul continues his testimony. Verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. Paul points to Ananias who is a devout Jew, well-spoken of, had a great reputation. Many of the people in the crowd that Paul's addressing would have known Ananias from Damascus. Ananias, a devout Jew, could attest to Paul's transformation. Paul's saying, go and ask him. Go and ask him about the change, what happened to me. Well, at Ananias' word, Paul receives his sight. At that very hour, Paul says, I received my sight. I saw him. Ananias said to me, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Ananias alludes to Paul's commission. You're going to be a witness of the risen Christ, telling everyone everywhere of what he's done for you. 
You're a witness. And then he instructs Paul to be baptized. Some interesting verbiage around this baptism encouragement and instruction. He says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. We're about to celebrate the ordinance of baptism in about 15 minutes. When that happens, is the person who's being baptized going to have their sins washed away? No. Through this person's faith in Christ, Jesus' blood has already washed their sins away. But when they go down into the waters of baptism and come on out, it is a picture of cleansing, figurative, symbolic cleansing. It's an outward picture of an inward spiritual reality. Just as Christ's blood has washed over this person, forgiving them of their sin, so the water is this picture of, of washing. So there's nothing mystical or magical that happens in baptism. It's a picture, an outward physical picture of an inward spiritual reality. We are washed and washed alone by the precious blood of Jesus Christ that happens upon our faith in Christ. Paul then recounts how he travels back to Jerusalem, verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing, standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus is telling Paul what his calling will be. You will be rejected by the Jews here in Jerusalem but I will take you among the nations throughout the Roman Empire to declare to the Gentiles the good news of salvation. And it is this last statement that serves as the breaking point in his audience's attention. Once they hear the word that Paul's commissioned to go to the Gentiles, they repudiate his message at that point. It is inconceivable in their minds that this message was for Gentiles, who were less than people. Peripheral people. It was Paul's connection with Gentiles that stirred up the angry mob in the first place. Acts 21, 28. Men of Israel, help. It's this man, Paul, who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He brought Gentiles in here. He's associating with Gentiles. It's the same accusation that Jesus got from the Pharisees and the scribes. He associates with, with sinners, with Gentiles. Well, Paul's testimony has been delivered, and now, second movement in this message, Paul's testimony has been rejected. Let's look together. Verses 22 and following, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, flinging dirt up into the air, this cultural symbol of disgust and outrage, just throwing, throwing dirt and dust up into the air. This angry mob is shouting out, away with him. He shouldn't be allowed to live. 
And the words and phrases here are so reminiscent of what Jesus went through in John chapter 19 and Luke chapter 23. It was verbatim, the same verb. They were shouting. The mob shouted, the same verb, kravazo. It's what Jesus, they were shouting, away with him, crucify him. And here the same verb is used by the crowd towards Paul, away with him. He shouldn't be allowed to live. We mentioned this two weeks ago. What we see here is Paul traveling in the footsteps of his Savior. They cried out to Jesus, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. And here now with with Paul, away with him, away with him. He should not be allowed to live. He's following in the footsteps of his Savior. And so it is with Christians today. We ought not be surprised when we face trial and difficulty, suffering and persecution. Rather, we find comfort and solidarity and hope in Christ. We find refuge in the wounds of Christ in the midst of our own wounds. We find comfort that we are walking the path of our Savior. He can empathize with us and he empowers us through it. Keep walking, friend. Keep going. Christ is with you. He knows what you're going through. Paul then does something strategic, doesn't he? He reveals his Roman rights as they're stretching him out to whip him. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Do you know what that means? Truth-telling by torture. It's what went on recently, a number of years ago, waterboarding. Truth-telling by torture. Stretch him out, whip him, and after each lash, say, are you telling the truth? I don't think so. Another lash. That's what they're seeking to do. Truth-telling by flogging. Let's find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? In an instant, Paul reveals his citizenship. And it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be whipped, to be beaten, uncondemned, without a trial, without being found out as guilty. You can't do that. The Romans were expert in law. You can't do that. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. You can hear the fear, the trepidation in their voice. And the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul says, I was born with mine. It's even better. Roman citizenship was precious, of the utmost value. Paul's saying, I I have it by birth. I never had to buy it. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had bound him. You cannot do this to a Roman citizen. Why does Paul reveal his Roman citizenship? Well, some would say he's got himself out of a pickle, and in some ways, yes. But this is not a ploy for Paul to avoid suffering, right? Paul knows that suffering awaits him. This is strategic. 
It's not a ploy to avoid suffering. Rather, it's a plan to get to Rome. This is a turning point in the book of Acts. Paul reveals his Roman citizenship. And from here on outward, we see him moving closer and closer to Rome. Because ultimately, he won't just reveal his Roman citizenship. He's going to appeal to Caesar, which is going to get him to Rome. Why does Paul want to get to Rome? That's part of his mission, to get to Rome and to declare the gospel there in Rome. His calling. This is a strategic point in the book of Acts that shapes the rest of the six chapters. Paul's revealing his Roman citizenship. It's now a highway to Rome where he will finish his race there. Paul perseveres in telling his testimony. No matter the response, he keeps telling it. Friends, know the power, the resource that your testimony is and keep sharing it. As you have the opportunity, tell people your story. In a few minutes, we're going to have a baptism. Every baptism is an opportunity to hear somebody's story. What do we do before we baptize people? We allow them to speak. And what do they share? They share their story. They share the good news of the gospel and how that's been personally embraced by them, how it's impacted them. And so in a few few moments, I'm going to invite Daniel Wong to come up. You can hold on for now. Let me pray, and then you're going to come on up and listen to God's gracious work in this young man's life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for the privilege that it is to share our stories with others. Everyone is unique. Everyone is miraculous. It is your work. Only you can take a sinner and make them a saint by your blood that was shed at the cross. Only you can deliver from death to life, from darkness to light. May we marvel at your gracious work in our own lives and in the lives of other people in our local church. And may it motivate us, Lord, to share with others and to pray for them with the hope and the anticipation of what you can in fact do. Lord, forgive us for looking at people in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, and internationally as people beyond hope, beyond repair. It's just not true. Move us, Lord, outward with the gospel, sharing the good news of what you've done for us and in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.